morning. Our sermon text this morning is Leviticus chapter 19, verses 1 through 8. That will be on page 96 in your house Bible. Excuse me, 97. If you don't have a Bible or if you know someone who needs one, please take that one with you today. Leviticus 19, 1 through 8. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel, and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Every one of you shall revere his mother and his father, and you shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Do not turn to idols or make for yourselves any gods of cast metal. I am the Lord your God. When you offer a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord, you shall offer it so that you may be accepted. It shall be eaten the same day you offer it or on the day after, and anything left over until the third day shall be burned up with fire. If it is eaten at all on the third day, it is tainted. It will not be accepted. And everyone who eats it shall bear his iniquity, because he has profaned what is holy to the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from his people. Father in heaven, you know us exactly as we are. You know if we are low in spirit, if we are hard in our hearts, if we are discouraged, if we're entertaining rebellion. If we need fresh hope, fresh life. You know us better than we know ourselves. Father, like a trained counselor or a trained surgeon. Who knows their patient better than they know themselves. Would you minister to us according to your word today? That what we hear preached from your word would be better than what any man could diagnose or offer. Because you know our hearts. You know our minds. And all the ways that we need to be encouraged to continue forward in faithfulness. We pray that you would encourage us. Strengthen us. And all the ways that we need to feel convicted sin that we don't know about, bitterness that we don't know about. And we pray that you would help us feel that, see that, and give us the strength to repent and turn toward you in all our ways. Thank you, God, for revealing yourself from your word. We pray that it is life-giving for us here today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, at what point should... 
a politician be removed? Some of you might be thinking, immediately, all of them. Representing the people as an elected official is a noble and important role in society, and at times, those individuals should be removed from their offices. I don't know how you feel about Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. He may very well be the first cabinet secretary to be impeached since the year 1876, happening right now in our capital. At some point, conduct may dishonor or abuse an office such that a process of impeachment would be necessary. When is that? Why? And who gets to decide? At what point might a student or a teacher be cut off or expelled from their school? What an honor to go to school. What a privilege to get an education. What a privilege to be a teacher and to teach the next generation of children. And yet, there's a standard for students and teachers. Even just last fall, the University of Texas let go two teaching assistants because in part of an email that they wrote. What about dishonorable discharge from the military? Representing the red, white, and the blue, defending the freedom of your country with your life is one of those honorable things that you can do. But it doesn't matter how many medals you have or what your previous heroics are, you can be discharged dishonorably if you're found drunk on duty or illegally even today if you commit adultery. Last year, an army sergeant in a highly visible NATO posting was dishonorably discharged for sexual assault. Well, so it is historically in the church according to God's word. There are ways and times and means, if necessary, to remove individuals from the visible church, from the local church, for God's name and for God's glory. This is nothing new. If you follow Millwood Baptist history, you can go all the way back to Hyde Park Baptist Church that planted us back in 1985, as my son referred to it in the 1900s. Hyde Park was planted itself in 1894, in the 1800s, by Pastor W.D. Beverly. We can follow W.D. Beverly all the way back to Paget's Creek in Charleston Baptist Association, and from there, John D. Webb in South Carolina. Here is something we read produced by the Charleston Baptist Association in the year 1774, older than our Declaration of Independence. In a work titled, A Summary of Church Discipline, shewing, yes, that's the word and the pronunciation, showing for us, the qualifications and duties of the officers and members of a gospel church. 1774, they said, every well-regulated society requires qualifications in its membership. Much more should a church of Jesus Christ be careful that none be admitted into its communion, but such are possessed of those prerequisites pointed out in Scripture. Well, friends, we ought to be careful about our politicians. We ought to be careful about our teachers. We have standards for the military. How much more ought we be careful about those whom we call a part of the church 
of Jesus Christ. Today, I want to show you the Bible's teaching, an overarching 30,000-foot view on how the church corporately cares for God's name in its members. How the church corporately cares for God's name in its members. This is not one of the things that, for example, if I was a guest and going to a church, I would just be really excited was the first sermon that I ever heard at a church. This might be one of those sermons that if you're feeling low in strength and you're feeling like you need encouragement as a Christian, this might not be one that you think, you know what, I just, I just think I really need a good sermon on membership and discipline. I mean, that would really boost my spirits. I mean, you want to talk about, you know, joy. Preacher, give us that. I don't think so. But my hope for you is that we can see as a church how deeply important this is to God and how deeply vital this is for our faithfulness as a church. It matters a lot to God. It ought to matter a lot to us. I want to work this morning through the biblical theology, just an overarching view of God guarding His name among His people, using His people. God uses His own people to guard His name, His reputation, in His people. If you go back to the last two weeks, you'd see we're, we're in a series here at Millwood, Lord willing, Creeks Don't Rise, it will end, not this Sunday, but next Sunday. And Lord willing, in March, we're going to begin a series in the book of Genesis. Really, really looking forward to this. Uh, I love preaching our kind of topical short series. I'm very eager to get our roots back into a book of the Bible consecutively. We'll begin that in the month of March. If you go back to the week one of this series a couple of weeks ago, we saw that God's name, that His reputation and His glory is His chief purpose in His covenant people. That's why He disciplined Israel. That's why He chose Israel. That's why he makes a people for himself that his name might be renowned and known on the earth. That is his chief concern, his own name. Last week we saw that God's new covenant people are not just chosen and given laws in order to give God glory. The new covenant people are now made heart first. God actually gives us a new heart in the new covenant. Whereas the old covenant gave us laws externally to try to follow The new covenant says that does not work. God actually is giving a new heart and a new spirit to his people, the Holy Spirit, and cleansing our sin now and forever in Christ, that we might be a holy people inwardly, not only externally. Today, we're going to see how God's new covenant people bear his name and how we care for his name together. So we'll look at the biblical theology of guarding his name, and then we'll look at principles and practices from some of those passages. Let's think from what Megan read for us in the book of Leviticus. Let's put it in its context and understand exactly what she read. In order to redeem mankind, God made a covenant with Abraham. God acts to save mankind through a covenant with specific people. He chose Abraham to be his people. And he said that he would be their God. Then God, hundreds of years later, saves his people miraculously by his power from slavery in Egypt. 
And he brings them into the promised land. We just moved from Genesis to Exodus, Deuteronomy, Joshua. As they came into the land, God gave them the law. That's the book of Leviticus, some of Deuteronomy and Numbers. He gives them the law and he tells them that commandment we looked at the first week. Don't take my name in vain. Have no other God. Make no idols. And do not take my name in in name only. In vain. Do not bear God's name in name only by worshiping other gods and disobeying God. Well, part of the way God intended His people to keep His name once they got into the promised land, He had chosen them and saved them and given them commands. Part of the way God intended to keep His name holy in His people was through the law and through mutual care for one another's holiness that they as a people corporately would be a holy people. The passage that Megan read for us in Leviticus 19 is a primary but yet just one example of a formula running through the book of Leviticus. And for that matter, Exodus and Deuteronomy. You will find this phrase over and over and over into the book of Numbers. I am your God You are my people. You should be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. And often through Leviticus, there is the explanation of the penalty of breaking the law. That if you are in God's people, but you are not following the law, you will be cut off from God's people. You'll be cut off from God's people. You might be shocked to hear some of the laws which include not only expulsion from the people of Israel taken outside of the camp or removed from your home or removed from your family or even receiving the penalty of death. For example, listen to Leviticus chapter 20, verse 9, another example of what Megan read in Leviticus 19. Leviticus 20, verse 9 says, For anyone who curses his father, this is for the people of Israel, bearing God's name in the land of Israel, while you're there, anyone who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. This is terrifying. Just look at the, the rampant disrespect for parents in our culture today. He's cursed. He has cursed his father or his mother, his blood, is upon him. I don't want to take too much time this morning just to go look, but we can see example after example. It's the Sabbath. It's the meat that is eaten in certain ways that are holy or not holy. God is very serious about the holiness in his people for his name's sake. It is more important than his people's very lives. And God intends for His people to care for His name by caring for one another's holiness. I mean, this is encouraging and terrifying. I think in some ways, in a very individualistic culture and society, it's really annoying and offensive. The idea that I have to be responsible for other people and the gall 
to say that if I'm going to be part of the church, they're supposed to be very, very concerned about my life. The concept of individuality that rule our modern think and mindset are so far from how God thinks when he organizes his people. God intends for his people to care for the holiness of his name by caring for one another's holiness, even if that means cutting off your own children or a spouse or a husband or even a mother or a father in the law. Seven times in the book of Deuteronomy, you hear Moses command the people, not just say that God is going to do something, but he commands the people this phrase, oh, just does not sound very good to our ears at first. Moses commands the people, purge the evil person from among you. Purge. This includes stoning and the Old Testament law for matters like adultery. False prophecy, idol worship, not honoring the Sabbath, more. Just read an example, kind of like the one from Leviticus. Read an example from Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 18 through 21. Deuteronomy 21, verse 18. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him, he will not listen to them. Then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of his city at the gate of the place where he lives. And they shall say to the elders of the city, This our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and all Israel shall hear and fear. I just think we tend to not really love stuff like this. And of course, we shouldn't love, we shouldn't be giddy about it. It's not something to be happy about. But it's there in God's word. Think about what it's saying. Imagine the moment. Imagine the experience. Imagine the severity. Imagine the dilemma where a mother and a father in this situation, just one example of many other kinds of situations in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, to make the decision, we're going to lose our son or we're going to obey God. In the Old Covenant, God says, you are not a people. I made you a people for my name. I saved you, I cleansed you, and I call you to holiness for my name. And I call you to care for my holiness and for my name by caring for one another's holiness as a church, as a people. My friends, I want you to know that as the Old Testament transfers into the New Covenant, the old covenant of the law in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, and we move into the new covenant where God gives his people new hearts through faith in Jesus Christ by the power of the Spirit as we are reborn, as we are converted, as we are regenerated, as we saw last week from the prophets in the New Testament. 
we ought not believe that that transfer from the old covenant to the new covenant means God has gotten rid of that old covenant formula. Choosing a people for himself, cleansing them, saving them, putting his name on them, and expecting them, calling them to care for his name among them by caring for one another's holiness. That is not lost as we transfer from the old covenant to the new covenant. That doesn't go away. That formula does not go away. In fact, it only becomes more severe and more important as the Bible progresses. We ought not think that somehow we got rid of that mean God, which is a falsity in itself in the first place. We got rid of that God in the Old Testament. He's stuck back there in the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, now we just have a God who saves people and His name is renowned in the earth only and merely by the fact that He forgives everyone and expects nothing from anyone. That's not the gospel. That's not the transfer from the Old to the New Covenant. No, in the gospel... It's not as if now there's no standard for living. There's no standard for community. There's no standard for the people of God. We have no responsibility for one another. Thank God that got cut off in the Old Testament. That simply isn't the gospel or how the Bible works at all. In the New Covenant, we too, those who are in Christ, are chosen, saved, forgiven. And we too are called to be holy as God is holy. And in fact, the call is actually even higher because the call is not only to be circumcised, to be righteous in the flesh and in our actions, but we've actually, in the new covenant, come into the covenant heart first. Our hearts and our minds are now part of the deal are now the central part of what makes us the new covenant people of God is that we have been given God's spirit. We've been given God's heart. God has gone from only the external people and the external temple expecting God to care for his, expecting his people to care for his name to how having the new covenant people where they are transformed inwardly. How much more Ought we, in the new covenant, be a people who are holy like God is holy? And how much more ought we be concerned about caring for one another's holiness so that God's name is known as he is through the new covenant people? I think sometimes we get in our minds the gospel means that God no longer expects his people to be holy because that's the gospel, that's the new covenant. He's just forgiving everybody. But actually, he's just taken it even deeper and elevated his intentions and his people from the old covenant. Remember Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4, even as he chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that... That's why or so that he chose us before the foundation of the world that we should be holy, blameless before him. We were not saved from sin to be free to sin more. We were freed from the power of sin and cleansed from our sin, the penalty of our sin through Jesus 
death on the cross and empowered by His resurrection and His Spirit so that we would be holy and blameless. That's the goal of our salvation. Not just a clean conscience every time you continue to sin with no remorse, but freedom, empowerment, forgiveness to no longer live in sin and to be a people who honor God and His name through our holiness. The gospel is that we were all cut off in the garden. I mean, you think, if we, guys, if we just think God is harsh because some of these Old Testament laws, let me just tell you, the harshness that you're so afraid of began in the very, very beginning. When God said to his people, Adam and Eve, I have made you in my image. Go fill the earth with my glory. God made Adam and Eve in his image, not just that they had capacities like him, that they could talk and, and they could love and they could interrelate with one another, but his image and his likeness in that they were representatives of him on the earth. Just like you might go to Washington and see a statue of Abraham Lincoln and you know this is Lincoln's land, this is America, this is our president's land, this represents us. We, all mankind, was made in God's image like that to represent him on the earth in his likeness. But Adam and Eve immediately sinned. They disobeyed God. They listened to the serpent. They rebelled against God. And what was the commandment from the very beginning? This is the harshest thing, if you want to call it harsh, that God has ever said. If you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. I mean, you want to talk about being cut off. You'll die. And Adam and Eve ate the fruit, and God sent them out of the garden, cut them off from him, and we have been dying and dying and dying and dying, and we die and we die, and we're all going to continue to die ever since because we have all likewise sinned against God. And the gospel is that if you put your faith and trust in God's Son, as the lamb sacrificed for your sins, you will come back in from being cut off into forgiveness of sins. And you will come back into being a part of the new covenant people of God where your sins are forgiven through Jesus' blood. Your heart is changed through the power of the Holy Spirit and you are now free to live with his new covenant people in holiness and righteousness. That's the gospel. That's the good news. Not that there are some really bad people and God might save them, but that we're all cut off and he brings us in through Jesus and Jesus Christ alone. But in that gospel, the formula from the old covenant continues. We're saved to be holy and we're saved to watch over one another's holiness. Look with me in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Thinking really critically about Genesis as we get ready to preach through that. I feel like I've been preaching Genesis chapter 3 in every sermon for 10 years. But I trust and pray that it will be fresh. The idea that the gospel means God never cuts anybody off and that he doesn't really care how we live is not coherent with the New Testament. Listen to Paul's instruction to the church in 2 Corinthians 6. 
He uses Old Testament language, and then he actually quotes from the Old Testament. Do not be unequally yoked, chapter 6, verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? You shouldn't be like that. That's not me. God is God, and in Him there is no darkness. God is God, and in Him there is righteousness, and there's no sin. What partnership does righteousness have with lawlessness? If you've been made righteous, what partnership do you have with lawlessness and sinning? You don't have any. That's an enemy. Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accordance has Christ with Belial, satanic powers and idols? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever, spiritually speaking? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. We are the place of worship. We are it. His Spirit dwells in us. We are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will make my dwelling among them, which is what He does in the temple. I will walk among them. Sound like the Garden of Eden, also a temple. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now Paul's saying, just like God did that in the Old Testament, that's what he's doing now in Christ. That formula has moved over. Therefore, go out of their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves. See the corporate nature? Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. That Old Testament pattern of saving a people for His name, purifying His people for His name, is carried over into the New Testament. And that pattern of expecting and calling His people to care for His name by looking at one another's holiness is transferred over to the New Covenant. The Old Covenant and the New Covenant are different in that in the New Covenant, Jesus is a better priest, never to die again, eternal, holy, spotless Himself, as we read this morning from Hebrews 7. Holy, cleansing us forever and ever, offering His blood in heaven, not just here on earth. It's different in that God has not only given the law to His people to follow and put it on stones and the, and the walls. He's given it to us in our hearts. He's changed our hearts. So the new covenant, praise God, is different. But it's the same. And that God has made a people for His name and He commands His people to be a pure and holy people for His name. Go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Look at verses 11 through 13. Paul there dealing with a man who is in such gross sin, he says even the pagans don't even do this. And yet this man is calling himself a brother, and you church are calling him a brother. And Paul says at the end of that section, encouraging the church, calling the church to remove this brother, to cut him off as it were. Not to kill him, but to remove him from the church. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 11, Now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, or someone who is counted as the people of God, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, swindlered, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders, Paul says? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. And then he quotes Deuteronomy. Purge the evil person from among you. 
That's a command from Paul to the church. And rather than being contrary to the gospel, it is an application, an extension of the purpose and the work of Jesus Christ to his new covenant people. Jesus died to even more deeply and eternally cleanse a new covenant people than the law ever could in the old covenant. So now new covenant people, just as the old covenant people, are to care for God's name by, to quote Paul, purging the evil person from among you. Paul says, what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those in the church whom you are to judge? Well, the church has gotten this wrong in so many ways over so many years. We tend to want to allow sin to run rampant in the church and judge those who are outside the church. I mean, this is half the testimony that people say they don't want to have anything to do with the church for for decades and decades now. Why would I go to church? Everyone there is just doing the same thing. The divorce rate is the same. The pornography use is the same. The greed is the same. It's all the same. And you're telling me like this special Christian people, you're doing the same things we're doing. It's not impressive. There's no distinction. It's the exact opposite of the very reason we were called and saved and forgiven and made holy in the first place. And one of the reasons the church in many times, in many eras, has found itself without a witness of holiness to the world as a distinct people from the world is when we quit caring about each other's holiness. We don't care. And we find ourselves where we're stuck in a position. We're just constantly judging the world. Look how, look how awful the world is. Yeah, it's the world. They don't have Christ. They don't, they don't know God. Paul says, what have I to do with judging outsiders? I, it's the church we should be judging. It's the church we should be watching carefully over. It's the church's holiness that should matter a lot to us. In fact, this is what makes a church a church. A local church, a little C church, if you will, is a gathering of people, two or three, according to Matthew 18, a gathering of two or three people at least who gathered in the name of Jesus Christ and who are overwatching one another's professions of faith in their lives. We're watching over one another's new covenant inclusion. We're not only a church just by the fact that we love to fellowship with one another, that we love to hang out together, that we like each other, that we have the same hobbies. A local church is intended and given the authority by Jesus to actually judge one another, to practice God's jealousy for his name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit by how we care for one another in our holiness for the name of his holiness in the nation. Three principles for us to take away from this relationship really between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant and the Gospel and God's care for His name in His people. Three principles. Number one, three principles and then three practices. Number one, God's chief concern is His name. We are not saved simply to be saved, church. We're not saved simply to be saved. God's chief concern from the Garden of Eden to the Garden of Heaven and throughout all time and everything He does is His name and His glory. Man is made in God's image. Excuse me, in likeness. God says, I'm going, to get, I'm going to get glory over Pharaoh. In Exodus 14. In Exodus 36, we saw the first week, God has concern for his holy name. That's why he does what he's doing in Israel. We saw in Isaiah 48, for my own name's sake, for my own name's sake, I am withholding my anger toward you because I'm not going to give my glory to another. Oh, friends, oh, church, let us never be offended by this. 
or bothered by this or conflicted about this. This is God's glory, and His glory becomes our salvation in Christ. This is God's self-proclaimed purpose in His Word. Let me just ask you, are you wrestling with this in your own heart, and your own mind? Does in some ways this just kind of sound like, yeah, I know that's true, and I see it all kind of in Scripture, but it's just, it just kind of irks me. God is so centered on His own glory and His own name and His own people. Friends, who would it be? You? Should you have all glory? Should you be praised and exalted? Your spouse? Child? Dog? Or cow? What? Who? Who is worthy of all glory and all praise? So thankful for John Piper giving me this sentence years ago. God is not an idolater. God does not give his own praise and his own affection in his own heart. He follows the Ten Commandments in his sins. God's chief concern is his own name. We only rightly care about anything in so much as our great concern is his name in everything we do. We only rightly care about anything in so much as our great concern is his name in everything. Are there things that you're really passionate about, really concerned about, really worked up about, things you get angry about? What's, what's the big deal? What matters so much? God's chief concern is his name. Make that a test for your heart and for your mind, for your concerns, for your passion. This is what matters so much to me. Number two, God's chief concern is his name. Number two, God is more concerned with quality than quantity. Wives, let me just ask you a question. You don't have to answer out loud. Would you rather have a huge fake plastic diamond or a small, real, flawless one. Men, and ladies as well, would you rather have 10 plates of Taco Bell grade ground beef or one grass-fed, reverse-seared ribeye from Nolan Ryan's Good Stock Butcher or the meat that our men smoked yesterday evening? Even better. Listen, all of us, every single one of us, without Jesus Christ, are in sin and rebellion against God and deserve his wrath. But the greatest value of God in his people is not how many there are, but what kind of people they are. The value of the holy people to God is found at the cross, where rather than his primary concern being as many as possible at all costs, his primary concern with sending Jesus to the cross was that his people would be holy and cleansed of all sin, now and forever. That's his chief concern in the gospel. A forgiven, cleansed, holy, regenerate, and one day glorified people forever. Do we see how over and over and over, if God is willing to cut people off for the sake of his name, his great concern is quality over quantity in the people. God's never been disappointed that his people were too holy and it cost them people. Not been his concern. Number three, God calls his people to corporately care for his name. Christianity is not a solo climb. God has called on his people to corporately care for his name, his reputation, and his glory. 
by caring and watching over one another's holiness. Notice how specific this is. We're, we are to care for one another's holiness. Our job is not simply to care for one another in relation to each other with what we want or what we wish for or what we, how we want to be cared for or how we'd like to be cared for. We were chiefly to care for one another's holiness as we corporately care for God's holy name. So listen, church, as a Christian, you're going to be a part of a church which God commands us to be, having the disposition that your church ought to just leave you alone is not an option. It's not an option for the people of God in any time or any place. Your people in God's name will just leave you alone. And that somehow that's the most righteous thing that we could do. That simply isn't true. That's partly why personal discipleship and life groups and one-on-one ministry and women's Bible study and youth group, why they matter so much. Why gathering here on Sundays as a church matters so much, not only to learn more Bible. You can learn the Bible on YouTube today. I don't know if you, you knew that. You can learn. You can, I'm going to tell you right now, guys. You can find way better preachers on the Internet than you can get at Millwood Baptist Church. Significantly better. We don't come here because there's a great preacher. We don't come here because our life group leader is just, just an amazing Bible study leader. That's really helpful and good if the Lord might bless us with those things. But we continue to gather that we might hear the word and watch over one another's holiness with our church. Not merely here to, to have friends. You can do that at the bowling alley or the knitting club or the golf course. But primarily, our identity and our function as a church is to guard one another, to care for one another, love one another by loving God's holiness in his people. In the people of God, each other's holiness is each other's business. Not only is isolation very dangerous for individuals, it's unwise, it's foolish according to Proverbs. It creates a liability for the glory and the reputation of God in God's people. This is a principle for God's people through old to new covenant alike. Bearing God's name is not a private affair. You don't get baptized as a private event. You don't get baptized to privately, personally declare your faith. We bear God's name corporately, together, as a whole. The terms for holiness and godliness are given to us by God. They're not left to us to determine on our own. If God calls His people to care for His name and holiness by caring for one another's holiness, my friends, we have to choose. Do we want to obey God? Or do we want to think that our way is somehow better? Three practices, not necessarily tied one-to-one to our principles. Three practices. Number one, care for God's name through careful application of baptism, the Lord's Supper, and church discipline. Care for God's name through careful application of baptism, the Lord's Supper, and church discipline. I think at first a few weeks ago I was thinking we might just do an entire two or three sermons on these things. We've since shortened it. Just because it's pretty simple, I think. Baptism is the formal public corporate moment where one who is being baptized is formally recognized as the people of God. Like getting a passport to be an American citizen. Matthew 28 says, we are baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Baptized in the name. Baptism, when you come into the church, is identity with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
It's a sign of new covenant inclusion because as we baptize someone down into the water, it signifies you are dead and buried with Jesus Christ. You're united to Jesus by your faith in Him. Therefore, you are a participant in the new covenant. You're with Jesus. You're with the New Testament people of God. Friends, we ought to show some caution when it comes to who we identify with the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God has us giving this caution for His name and His people from Old and New Covenant alike. Same goes for the Lord's Supper. We've been reading 1 Corinthians chapter 11 as part of our Lord's Supper, and we will again this morning for years here at Millwood. I wonder if you remember what it says in 1 Corinthians 11 as Paul is reminding what Jesus, the church, what Jesus said when he gave his blood on the cross. The first time that he gave the Lord's Supper to his disciples, he says, this cup is the what? The new covenant. To identify with the Lord's Supper by partaking in it is to partake in and proclaim yourself as part of the new covenant. We've got to be careful about who does that. And friends, we've got to practice what we call church discipline as well. This is a new covenant application of being cut off. We are instructed, Paul says, to purge the evil person from among us. One incredible Baptist ministry in church history is that of Charles Spurgeon in the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London. His ministry is well known. What was it like? His church reached in its peak more than 5,300 active members church members, you might think that Spurgeon just let the floodgates open. Spurgeon just let anybody become a member that wanted to walk down the aisle and, and sign a card. But actually, Spurgeon was very careful about church membership. Their congregation voted on every single member as a whole. There's a six-step process to becoming a member. And to participate in the Lord's Supper at Metropolitan Tabernacle, you actually had to have a ticket. <laughs> is this, this is, I find this humorous. You'd have a meeting with a pastor in the church and give a good reason why you ought to be admitted to the Lord's Supper, and then you would be given a ticket. It looks kind of like a, a fair ticket that we would see today. And when you went to the church, you could hand that over to the pastor who was handing out the Lord's Supper and be permitted to receive that day. They did that 5,300 times as a church. People sometimes ask if we do this as a church. This is one of my favorite parts about membership class at our church. People ask, do you actually do this at our church? When we talk about this, people ask, do you actually do this? And we do, and we've, we've done it. We're trying to get better at, at doing it. It's part of our witness as a church to the world, the care for God's holiness, by practicing carefully baptism, the Lord's Supper and Discipline. Two things really quickly. Be patient and forgiving toward the repentant. When Jesus tells the disciples in Matthew 18 to remove those who are unrepentant, Peter asks a question, which is ironic coming from Peter. Uh, in my own layman's terms, how long do we have to forgive these idiots? I mean, these people keep sinning and sinning and sinning and sinning. Okay, Jesus, how many times are we supposed to forgive them? How long do we have to put up with this? Seven times, Jesus, which would be a big number. That's all I've got. I've got seven times forgiveness. What is Jesus' answer? No, Peter, I tell you, 70 times seven. Take your number, multiply it by 10, multiply it by itself. Peter probably couldn't even do that math. Oh, maybe he could. I don't, I don't know. Who knows? 
I'm struggling with the math myself is what I'm trying to say. Um, quit doing that, Peter. And the Lord tells Peter a story about a man who had a very small debt, like a $5 worth of debt, and a master forgave him his little debt. And then that man remembered that there was someone who owed, or he was given a great debt. Sorry, there's a man who was forgiven like a billion dollars, an incalculable amount. Forgiven a billion dollars. And then that man who was forgiven a billion dollars went to another man who owed him $5. And put his hand on his throat and choked him and put him up on the wall and says, Pay now or I'm going to put you in prison. And Jesus says, That man, he cannot expect to find himself in the kingdom of heaven. Friends, as we practice discipline in the church and baptism, the Lord's Supper, oh, we have to be very patient, very eager to forgive, but regularly repenting. Haven't you been forgiven a great amount? Some of us need to hear, hey, you need to slow down on the discipline. We just want to discipline everywhere. I was with a group of pastors a few weeks ago, and two of them were Presbyterians, and one of them just leaned back in his chair and said, you Baptists and y'all's discipline. As if we just love disciplining people. Well, we've got to be careful that we don't just love that. We're not ready to forgive. Be patient and forgiving toward the repentant, but church, we must be resolved for God's name toward the unrepentant. We must do this. Listening to a pastor this few weeks ago who I highly, highly revere, and I would consider a friend I've learned so much from, shared with a group of pastors, and this is, this is the guy who I think is killing it. Like, he's just, I just, I want to be him. He's, he's doing it right. He's, he's helping me in so many ways. And to hear him say, our, our church five years ago, we, we did not remove a brother who is in gross sin. We didn't do anything about it. And just in the last few months, it's really come back to bite us and harm and hurt our church and harm the name of God. And it's probably convicting for me that this is, my, this is one of my guys. This is a guy I look up to, I revere. And I wonder if I could find myself in the same scenario or we as a church. Friends, when we're low in strength, low in number, low in understanding, or unpopular in our culture, even when we share different opinions about the particulars in our church, we'll be tempted to avoid obeying God's commission to bear and guard his name through corporate care of holiness. But let us consider how jealous God is for his name and saving us by his grace through Christ, cleansing us from sin and then calling his new covenant people to care for his holiness by caring for one another's holiness. Let us believe and let us obey according to pray. Father, thank you so much for your kindness to us in Jesus Christ. We have sinned against you. You have forgiven us. Thank you.